Intersection is brought to you by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Learn more at touchpoint.health. The reality is, is there are just things more important than winning. I mean, really, there, uh, you know, the, who, who you are, the values that you have, what you believe in, and, and doing it the way that I think reflects what you stand for are far more important. Welcome to Intersection. I am Bobby Ratu, storyteller. Why did you run? Was there an epiphany one day that said, I'm going to run for governor, lieutenant governor? You wake up, you're like, let me put that on the goal. Yeah. <laughs> let's just go ahead and let's write a plan. I mean, what What was the, was there an epiphany or was it a something that led to it? Talk about that a I mean, little I, bit. There was no one day or one, one moment and it was never, I never like, it, you know, said it's my life goal to you know run for governor and serve as governor of this great state. Um, it, but it, it came clear to me um, through my service in the state house and my experience in the military and uh, and being a father and a husband that uh, and I think it's clear to a lot of South Carolinians that, that we ought to be in a better place when it comes to educating our kids. We shouldn't be fiftieth in anything when it comes to taking care of our kids in the next generation. And and that to change this, we're going to need new leadership. Um, and I, I felt like that uh, the experience that I've had, the opportunities of service that have been given to me and, and the way I've chosen to uh, keep faith with those, put me in a position, I think, to make a difference. And, uh, and I was very, really humbled by the tremendous amount of support that uh, we received and, and really the understanding, I think, that everybody that knew what we were about and followed, we garnered a lot of support. We just weren't able to reach everybody. But uh, it was it was a fundamentally about South Carolina reaching her fullest potential. I believe our best days are ahead of us, but to get there, we've got to have leadership that understands that and understands how to get there. Running for political office has to be one of the hardest journeys an individual can face. It takes time, energy, lots of resources, a lot of contacts, and a committed family. Running for the highest offices in the state of South Carolina is the pinnacle of challenges for a Democrat in a traditionally Republican state. James Smith and Mandy Powers Norell were ready to face that challenge, charged with core values they believe were inside the heart of their fellow South Carolinians. Their statewide grassroots approach took them city to city, meeting so many people with so many passions, yet fell short during the late hours of the 2018 November election night. I follow their campaign closely My political background came as a journalist covering Senator John McCain's first presidential run in 2000, Senator John Edwards' presidential run in 2004, and numerous Democratic and Republican national conventions. James Smith and Mandy Powers Norell had the drive, spirit, and commitment to serving the highest offices in the state. I wanted to connect with them after the dust cleared from their campaign and reflect. They have amazing stories that intersect so many lives and so many strong initiatives they believe will push the state of South Carolina forward. 
you know, in terms of me personally, I had always thought I wouldn't have the energy to run for statewide office. So I was glad that we had a system of running mates this time so I could test that theory. And one thing that I learned in this process is that you, you know, the energy meets the need and you, you generate the energy that you need when you're passionate about what you're doing. And throughout this, you know, James talks about the, the support that we received. I swear, you know, I, I don't see how Henry got more votes than us because we had the most passionate people. I know passion only votes once, just like dispassionate people only vote once. But it, it was um, the support that we received from the people who were helping us along the way was so overwhelmingly tremendous and awesome. And it, I think, um, reemphasized every single day why we were doing what we were doing. You know, when you start thinking about running for office, it's kind of like starting a business or being an entrepreneur you have to put a lot of discernment into it. You just don't say, oh, I'm just going to run for office and it's just going to magically going to happen and there's yeah. going to be money there and people are going to yeah. love me. And <laughs> I mean, you, there is a process yeah. of thinking through that. And obviously, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I would guess that you've already gone through that process being a state legislator. You know, you understand the inner workings and... Oh, much smaller scale. Yeah. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, is it time to take it to the next level? Talk about that discernment that, Maybe you went through a little bit to kind of think through those. Bobby, you reminded me of a, of a conversation I had with Alex Sanders, who's one of you know, South Carolina's treasurers. And Alec was you know, chief judge of the Court of Appeals, president of College of Charleston, and just a very wise man. And I was talking to him about running. He said, well, James, get yourself a stack of $100 bills, as much as you can find, and start flushing them down the toilet. And once that feeling goes away, then, then, <laughs> then, you know, then don't run for anything. You know, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it is, um, it did take some time. I mean, for, I think, I'm sure for both of us, but our, you know, families are number one. I mean, you had to make sure that, that everyone was ready for this step. Um, but it was a great deal of sacrifice for both of us. I mean, pretty much at it, you know, didn't close my law practice, but the vast majority of it, staff and everybody had to go elsewhere to find employment. You had to, you know, worry about, you know, the kind of things that, you know, you, you know, keep the lights on and um, take care of things when you really got to give this a full, a year and a half, no less than I believe a year and a half full-time commitment. Um, and doing that is a, is a real sacrifice, not just for us, but for all of our family, for those around us that are having to pull up on, on areas where we can't meet and do things. I mean, there are um, the other board services that I've been grateful to be on. Others, you know, really stepped in and, and took care of things because I couldn't. And I couldn't have done this without their support. I mean, it is, you know, you can't be an island and do this. I mean, it, it requires a tremendous amount of financial support, emotional support, uh, every day, you know, taking care of Aaron's stuff. I mean, your, your whole life down to driving is taken over by somebody else. You're, where are you going next? Who's going to be there? And to do it right, you have to f- be fully committed to it. And it took a while to get there, um, but it, again, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life to, to have the privilege of being the Democratic nominee for governor of this great state. Um, and we were going to, because of that, we we're going to do nothing less than give our very best at every moment we had. And we tried not to miss a single moment of any day to be out there and sharing with us our vision for the, sharing with others our vision for the state. For me, like every member of my family always has veto power. 
in, <laughs> no. in any political decision I make. Like if, if anybody says, I don't want you to do it, then I don't do it. And, and there's no, um, there's, you know, no questions asked. It's just, you know, because it is such a huge commitment for everybody. I think it's a lot of times it's harder on the family members because when somebody attacks us, we can defend ourselves, right. but our family members want to defend us and they, right. they can't because they, they, you know, don't want to inject their voices into, into the, um, the, the, the argument. So I think a lot of times it's harder and, and, you know, we were able to focus on one single thing yeah. running for office, but the people who were helping us along that way were having to take up all the slack and keep a hundred plates spinning at the same time. And, and it was, it was a luxury to be able to focus on one single thing that you're really passionate about. And, and again, you know, at the end, we just said, we will have no regrets. We are not going to get to the end of this and say, we should have worked harder. We should have done more. We should have gone to, you know, one more event right? because we were all over the state working as hard as we could every single day. One of the smartest ads that I think I've seen in my time was the television ad that y'all released uh, talking about, you know, your time overseas and the phone call. Yeah. Very, very powerful uh, probably one of the smartest political ads I think I've seen in a long time, specifically because you played two sides very effectively. Um, but you also were very, very, very transparent and let people into your life a little bit. Yeah. Talk about that ad. What was the feedback and what was the thought behind that? You know, the strategy, if well, there was uh, yeah, much. Yeah, uh, there was. I mean, at the beginning, uh, it, you know, all of the consultants that you hired to bring on, they, they really <laughs> said that you got the you know, really stress your biography, stress, you know, what you're about, you know, same with Manny's got a powerful narrative in her story. Right. uh, But they needed to, my biography needed to get known. And so uh, that ad really came out of, and I just have to give Mark Putnam, uh, who's, if you look at all of the ads that have actually gone viral over the past years, he's had a hand in virtually every one of them. Um, He has a powerful way, often a very theatrical way of telling a very authentic story. And so over a long, you know, telephone conversation, you know, he kept hearing these various different stories and the thread came through all of them. This was a phone call or a mm-hmm. call. And he ran that thread through the events that brought me to, and my family to where I was to take the extraordinary step of resigning my commission in the JAG Corps and listening to the infantry and going back to basic training at 37 and all this kind of craziness. That, uh, and to tell that story in 60 seconds, which is, Hard to do, and there's a lot to it. And you know, when you hear the story too, there's a lot that you know you can think of about a hundred questions that you might ask. Um, but it was also very real, and it, and it said, I thought for me and my family, what we're about, which is the kind of commitment uh, to our state, to our country, that surpasses each other as a family, that we're willing to risk everything we have because we love this country of ours. We love we have um, faith in this and in, in our God and in the principles that have established this country, and it requires that kind of commitment to ensure that it's there for the next generation. That's what my parent, my parents, and their you know my uncles and what my grandfathers did, and their grandfathers has just always been. We're about that kind of commitment, and that's what that I think tried to express. What I love about both of your stories, they're very different, but they're very unique, and they have such a powerful intersection because it comes from this idea of having to work hard for where you are 
And, you know, really reading your background, you know, coming from Lancaster, mm-hmm. you know, the sharecroppers, and then paying your way into Furman. And then Furman's not a, you know, I mean, call it, it's a big check to strike to yeah, go to Furman. Well, now I couldn't do it. Yeah. Nobody could do it now. But yeah, I mean that's a that's a long lineage. Talk about mm-hmm. your work ethic and what it took to not only have that vision, mm-hmm. but also balance being a mom. I mean, because that's a that's a tough narrative in South Carolina to balance right this second. You know, with where are women's place in legislature right. and where are women's place in these issues? And you carried it so well. Thank you. Well, when I first ran for office in 2008, I got a call from a reporter who uh, asked me, how are you going to handle your obligations to your children and your <laughs> husband? And I got so mad. I said, you know, if I were a man, would you ask me that? Mm-hmm. And he said, no, ma'am, I'm sorry. I wouldn't have. And so I didn't answer. And I got off the phone and I said, oh, my God, how am I going to handle my obligations to my children and my husband? <laughs> it's like, come on. And how are you going to handle your obligations to your wife? And, and so that was my, and I struggled with that. You know, is that a fair question? And it wasn't a fair question because he admitted he would not have asked me that if I weren't a man. Right. But it would have been a very fair question to ask anyone if right. you ask it equally. Because everybody has obligations to their families. And when we talked about families earlier, I was thinking, you know, so often in politics and in business, we're asked to deny the fact that we have families. Right. And and then and especially women have that pressure because in, in the traditional role, we're expected to handle more of family obligations. But that I mean, that's not the way it is in my house. We we share everything equally. And maybe I don't do as many of the traditional role. Um um, you know, tasks as, as I, uh, that, that would make it equal, but it's, uh, we, we find an equilibrium there. And so for me, you know, personally it balanced really, really well. Cause I had a lot of support at home, but you know, the, and getting back to, you know, the hardworking kind of, um, narrative that I come from, I think my dad really influenced the the way I see the world a great deal because when you grow up in poverty uh, the way that he did he didn't call it poverty because everybody around him was in the right. same situation right but he instilled in me this notion of not taking anything for granted not throwing anything away and saving I'm a, a compulsive saver and um, that's just sort of the you know the thing that drove me I had this fear of of poverty but not like not just not having what I wanted, but I had a fear, an irrational fear probably, of abject poverty. And because I knew how difficult it was to, or how easy it would be to not have shelter or not have, you know, the basics of life. And as I you know, struggled to pay for, for my college education and, and also my meal plan and also everything else, it, that, that reality would hit me several times right. so that made me um, work really really hard because a scholarship meant a lot and, yes and it made a huge difference when i got a scholarship to law school that i was able to go to law school so um those were the things that that kind of drove me maybe an irrational fear but it was a um it was a driving force and i think about this q a part this section of it mainly because mm-hmm. I think about my daughter. She's seven years old. Her name is Rose. Mm. Um, and I'll tell you this quick story, and then I'll tell you kind of the backstory behind that question, is we have been very, very intentional with her 
to make sure that if she sees sports on television, she realizes that she can play them too. Uh-huh. So it's a visual cue that, yes. you know, parents are trying to, to change some narratives here. And so the last presidential election, Sarah and I went to, uh, to vote and we took Rose, we let the boys. And so we go in and Sarah took uh, Rose over to vote and allowed her to punch the ticket mm-hmm. for Hillary Clinton. And it was a big deal because Sarah, it was a moment to say, you can vote as a female in the state of South Carolina for a female president, especially given the fact that her ancestors, Sarah's ancestors, um, are the Landrums, who are part of the secession that is on. And so that it goes way back and break all these rules. And so I, I asked that question because I think it is great to to hear from women leadership talk about being that visual cue. Did you see and have children and women come to you and say, wow, if you can do it, I can do it too? The probably the most moving part, when we would go and have forums and, and groups come together, when women would bring their daughters and ask, can I take a picture of you with my daughter? That was just the sweetest and most moving thing for me because I would think, you know, this is... There, it's a you know, it's a heavy burden to make sure that you know you're a good role model when you right. realize that that you are uh, a role model for these little girls, but and and that they may not quite know it. And I hope that by the time they grow up, that it's not even a thing, right. you know, that it's just like oh, there's a, a politician I took a picture with. Not <laughs> there's a woman who was running for high office, and isn't that a, a wonderful thing? Because I don't want it to be unusual. What made this so hard? What was the hardest part of this push for this ticket? So much of it. We, we just fed on the energy of people. There's so much that was really great, you know, every day. Some of it's, I would never call it easy. Even the great things and the really good things can be hard, and you do it because you love it and you have a passion for what you're doing. Um, and, you know, so, um, you know, winning, getting there is was very hard, right? We were coming in a, running in a state that hadn't seen uh, a Democratic victory in a long time, and we, we didn't have the support that, uh, that uh, uh, from outside the state. And we had, you know, four times the amount of money coming against us. And, and uh, But we also showed that we could raise money far more than people expected. We raised, you know, including what went to the party and to other independents and stuff, close to $4 million. And, uh, you know, we... We did it with small donors, over 7,000 individual donors, uh, averaging about $125,000, $130,000 donation. Um, and we were just you know, really fortunate to, to see that. That was hard, but it was really good. And it was, uh, but you know, we could have been great to have been able to raise another million or two more. We, we could have certainly used it. We, I think yes. we would have won. won. I mean, really, it was where we were known and where the race was mm-hmm. between. Yeah, Mandy and James and Pam and Henry, where people knew the, the players and the actors and the candidates well, regardless of party, we were winning. Yeah. Um, but it, it's that ability to transcend those partisan divides, that was hard. But the challenge was a great one, and it was a right one. It was a good one, and, and it was one that we both relished. And, uh, and we saw the pathway to win, and we just didn't have enough juice to get us there. James, do you remember that um, 
I can't remember what festival it was at in the upstate when that lady kept saying, oh, bless your heart. You're not going to win. You know, and she wanted us to win, but we, it was, it was yes, kind of early. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, there were people who had heard the narrative. Mm. South Carolina is a red state. Mm. A Democrat can't win in South Carolina. And I think we showed that a Democrat could win in mm-hmm. South Carolina if, if they're well-funded and, and get their, um, the, their message out, but that lady, I just, I wanted to shake her because she just kept saying, I feel so sorry for y'all, you can't win. Oh, look at you, you're so, that's so sad. <laughs> and she just sat in her chair and put her face in her hand. And she, she was like, I would be pulling for you, but oh, you but it, I mean, let's just be honest. It does come down to funding. It does. It really does come down to funding, and and we and in South Carolina, it doesn't take that much funding compared to other compared states. To right, for sure. Yeah, that is that's something that's just got to change. I and mean, I'd love for uh, the National Democratic Party to really focus on winning. You know, winning in California and the Northeast. You know, whatever. You know, if you can win in the South, win in South Carolina. And you can win in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and our party does need to learn, particularly from the national perspective, how to pe- appeal, uh, you know, to working, hardworking families in South Carolina, um, and do a better job of that. And I know that we have the message that was doing that. We just didn't have the ability to deliver that message to as many people as it needed to hear it. And uh, uh, but clearly, where we did, we were winning. You know, it's. Uh, I think back to. Um, 1999, you know, the Republican primary, John McCain was here, he and Bush, uh, and we were in Charleston. I remember him losing that night. He walked off the stage and we did an interview afterwards. And I remember when he sat down, he came in and you could see a man just completely defeated because he had put so much Mm -hmm. energy. And of course he was at the, you know, he's at the latter stage of his life. He's trying to make a decision if he's going to run again. Right. I really think the first time he ran was so much better than the second time. Mm-hmm. But how did you transition out of, oh, okay, now that's done, to what to do now? I mean, it's... Not well. For me, not well. <laughs> I mean, it's a, um, personally, I mean, that I think that's more of a, and I'm answering this more on a, like a personal emotional level, but when you're in the campaign... It's like you're on a train that goes faster and faster and faster and faster, but trains will slow down before they stop. But this one just stops on election day. I mean, whether you win or you lose, it stops. The campaign stops. And I loved the campaign so much. I loved the traveling and meeting people and going to, you know, small towns and big cities and going into these little shops. And I loved every bit of that. And to sleep late on November 7th felt so surreal. And people, like, they, I didn't even have the regular things where people would, like, invite me to come do this or that because they would say, we want to let you rest. Mm. And I'm like, don't let me rest. Yeah. That's not at all what I want to do. I don't. Mm. And even now, when I walk the halls in uh, the state house, they'll say, are you rested up? <laughs> I never wanted to rest. Yeah. I never asked for that. I wanted to keep going. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a tough transition. Now a quick break to ask for your help. If you like Intersection, we would really appreciate you take a moment, whether you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher, please take a moment to leave a review. 
This is important because it helps others find our show. Thanks so much for your help. Now, let's return to the show. Back to that obligation conversation again. Mm -hmm. What's the obligation to your family now? How do you Mm -hmm. talk to your family about something that they have all invested? Yeah. Well, it's tough. I remember for the kids, uh, one of mine going back to school the next day, um, and everybody was being so nice, right? They just, they, they know we've lost, but they were there to say, you know, a lot of positive things, but it's hard to hear, particularly when you're uh, a young person. And, and so um, by that first day, you know, you get beyond that and you get up the next day, just keep going. And, and you know, nothing for us, it didn't change necessarily who we are. We're all about the same things, whether it was in office or not. Um, that doesn't make me or my family, you know. Right. Uh, and so it, there's certainly heartbreak in the sense that, that, you know, for all the people we saw, the, the kind of the hope that was shared and the aspirations and the, the, the belief and anticipation about what we could deliver for our state uh, and knowing how many people and from so many corners of our, uh, of our state that were counting on us prevailing and invested so much. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while, yeah, it really was a crummy morning the next day, uh, and and I got up and brought the dog. I mean, you know, you you just do the things you do. And, but I knew we were gonna be all right. You know, I've got, we'll have opportunities and things. We're gonna continue to focus on the values that we care. I really, really think about so many of the people that we met who just deserve better particularly in parts of our state that, that aren't doing as well as they should and, and or can. Uh, and so many of the folks that aren't going to have access to health care, I mean, the hundreds of thousands of people that get sick and can't go see a doctor because they can't pay for it. It shouldn't be the case. And that still, that's still makes me find the loss hard to deal with because I know how many people out there were counting on us. Talk about the policies that resonated with people that you were using as you were on the campaign trail. And then let's contrast it with the policies that are just like, I ain't hearing that. That ain't working. Mm-hmm. What, what was resonating and then what didn't resonate? Healthcare resonated mm-hmm. in yeah. a big way. And, and what's so odd is, you know, we talk about there, um, there are a lot of ways to measure a win. And objectively, we didn't win on election day, but when session starts again, we're hearing McMaster and the leadership in the House talk about education as being their top priority. And they're using, you know, somebody said um, when McMaster did his speech at the inauguration, they thought that somebody had switched out James's speech on a teleprompter (laughs) (laughs) because he's using the same words that we used in the campaign. And, And we're hearing it from everybody in leadership. And so it, to a degree, that's a win because the policies that we stood for are, I think some are going to happen now. We're not seeing that with health care. And right. I think that was a huge one that the people of South Carolina, when they understand it, they want it. And the challenge is to, to make sure that they understand that $2 billion a year that's our money is not coming to us be, just because our governor is saying no to it. And when they when they get that and they see how many lives it could save and how many people it could help and how many jobs it could create, then they want it. But I think that the challenge is the attention span. And 
and getting people to, to really understand that we really could have that. So the big question, can a governor and a lieutenant governor that is a Democrat win here in South Carolina? Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. Yes. Absolutely. It's just this, this wasn't the time, but I think we paved the way for future efforts and helped mm-hmm. uh, helped improve the opportunities. And, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. No doubt about it. And South Carolina is growing at 1% a year. So we've got 50,000 people coming into the state every year and they're, you know, they bring with them their own um, perspectives and ideas. And we see a lot of changes, particularly in, um, you know, in the low country as people have moved in, they've, they've changed the political landscape down there. And, and just about every precinct in the state was bluer than it was four years ago. So it's, uh, things are changing. You know, it's interesting up in Anderson, you have people talking about running for those state house that Mm -hmm. are traditionally red and they get the statement, "Ah, you should probably run Republican and switch. How do we change that conversation? How do we start having conversations that it is okay to stand on your values, whichever side or wherever they may play? And just because it was red or maybe not or whatever it may be, that the voice still needs to be out there. How do you go and tell the next round of leadership that is wanting to aspiring to run that is in that progressive community? What do you say to them? I mean, we've certainly, we've both gotten, uh, or it's just switch parties. And you, you, you know, if you were a Republican, you'd have won, no problem. You'd have won. Yeah. 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 You can't change who you are. Yeah, I just don't think it's... Uh, and, and and the reality is, is there are just things more important than winning. I mean, really, there uh, you know the, who, who you are, the values that you have, what you believe in. Um, that's and doing it the way that I think reflects, you know, what you stand for are far more important. Uh, you know, obviously, you want to win because you want to govern. Right. I'm not interested in yelling at the right. TV. Right. Right. Want to do the things, but but. But I'm not willing to do things that would betray who I feel like I am, what I stand for, in order to win an election. I just think that's, and some people that doesn't bother them, right? Clearly, um, and you find a lot of you kind of two types of folks in politics: those with tremendous uh, amount of uh, just not a lot of experience, but very aggressive in their uh, aspiration, I guess, uh, but not always people for the right reason. High risk tolerance. Yeah, <laughs> they just really are. are you know, just want the gaining of power because of and maintenance of it. That's the, all they mm-hmm. not, not all they want. What to do with it or who to serve? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about them, not others. And there and there's those there that are there mm-hmm. that are committed to to giving up those times when they might not be able to see their child in the play, but they're doing this thing to serve their community or their state um, because of the values that they have. And those, I think, are, are not necessarily partisan ones, but um, but I know, for me, for the Democratic Party, I've been very proud of, of what we've stood for and the commitment of service that the party has stood for, and it's one that I believe reflects uh, closely to what I feel is most important about what we do in public office. This is the biggest opportunity to start changing the demographics in the legislature. More women, more people of color. Mm-hmm more diversity, you know, what is your message to those, those people that have the national conversation right now is kind of scary, but I really want to serve. 
How do you inspire them? It's kind of hard to answer because at the right. same time that we want to encourage people to really, you know, just right. step out on what you believe in who you are, right. which I truly believe, like, you know, as James said, we've both been encouraged to, to switch and I can never, ever do that because you can't change who right. you are. But I do appreciate the fact that I serve with some Republicans who are, who think a lot like me. Right. Who, if they were out there, um, you know, in in other districts, they might be considered to be Democrats. And Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of gets them in trouble in their own party sometimes. Right. I appreciate that they are in service because very, you know, with the gerrymandering that we have, um, most of the races are decided in primaries. And when that happens, you get the extremes of, of each party. And uh, a lot of times we're getting the extreme right, uh, the, the deep libertarian right mm-hmm. of, of some of the, um, the Republicans that come to the state house. And I don't think it, rep- it accurately reflects their district. Mm. So I appreciate the fact that we have some people who are a bit more centrist in, mm-hmm. in, in their own party and would even be considered um, a member of our party right. in, in another district. So I want them to keep running the way that they are. I want them to keep getting elected because the alternative is can be pretty scary. Yes. That's a smart point and something I haven't really thought about that when it comes down to governing, you need a good well balance. You know, goodwill balance across the the whole place. Um, A couple things that I want to kind of wrap up on. Why politics? You know, you can, I I heard someone say the other day, uh, actually my mentor, he looked at me and goes, you know, you don't have to run for office to serve South Carolina well. There's so many other places to serve in a way that can make the state better. Why did you choose politics to serve South Carolina well? You can get a lot more done in politics. You know, I mean, you can affect thousands of people's lives in in politics. And that's a, that's a, a very, it's a heavy burden. and It's a, a wonderful opportunity. Just a passion for it. I mean, I, I felt like, a, you know, absolutely it was where I should be and what I should be doing. Um, and I felt like, you know, whatever, you know, small gifts and talents that the good Lord's given me, they were being put to best use in this way. And, uh, and yeah, I just really thought I was in the right place doing what I should be doing. And I agree with you. And I'm learning to find other ways to serve now that I'm out of public life, but, um, and believe very much that, that, and I so believe what, uh, Martin Luther King said that everyone can be great because anyone can serve. Uh, he's exactly right. It's all about service, and we find our place. And I tell so many people on the, this campaign and before that that's part of our job is to find our place in this in this wonderful democracy of it to ensure that it continues for the next generation. And that doesn't mean everybody's in public office. Maybe you're a teacher, and yeah. maybe you're in, serving in the military. Maybe you're you know serving your own community uh, and and in a whole host of any ways and manners on local boards and volunteering for. Whatever the case might be, but we all have a place to ensure that, because it doesn't mean just because of sunrise that we're going to continue to be a free nation. We've got to have people willing to continue to fight for it, so it's there for the next generation. Last question, and I don't want to use the word remember because I feel like remember puts dates upon something. But what is your greatest takeaway 
from the campaign that y'all ran that will take you into your next phase of what what you're doing now? What is the biggest thing that you'll take with you as a staple to build upon? I would just say it's not done. I mean, it worked. I, I left that uh, when we feeling completely uh, that there's so much more to be done. So, I, I mean, I, the experiences were invaluable. The people we met, the, the relationships that we've developed, uh, the support that we were able to, to achieve, for me, it, I just felt reinforced and a commitment to continue to find a way to uh, fulfill the promise, you know. Um, and so the biggest takeaway for me was, you know, it ain't over. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I guess, well, you know. I don't know. What about you? And the relationships, I think, and yeah. then the places that we visited. There were so many places in South Carolina that I knew were there, but had not. You know, there were there were spots that we went back to time and time again that were um, were so unique to our state. And I knew we had a great state, but this just really traveling all over South Carolina. Um, it, it drove it home. We were able to do things that you would have no context to mm. do if you're just a, you know, just touring the state mm. or just uh, visiting or, or driving through. And, and we were able to forge relationships in, you know, from, you know, up in the mountains all the way to the, the coast. And, and it was a, a wonderful thing. And we're yeah. still in contact with a lot of those people. And, and hear from them every single day yeah, on social absolutely. media. That's, that's yeah. phenomenal. Well, I want to thank both of y'all for your time. I know you're very busy, um, and I appreciate the opportunity. Y'all are two awesome people, and it's, it is a pleasure to sit in this room and, and chat just for a few minutes because I know you got a lot of other stuff to do, so thank you. Thank you, uh, thank so you Bobby. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Intersection is powered by Touchpoint Media Network, podcast dedicated to discussions on all things healthcare. Go to touchpoint.health for many other podcasts, including Datapoint, hosted by Greg Matthews, featuring trending topics as he explores the idea of the quadruple aim, enhancing patient experience, improving population health, improving provider experience, and reducing costs in the system. To learn more, go to touchpoint.health. That is touchpoint.health.